Hello everybody, bienvenidos. This is Seminary for the Rest of Us. And as always, Sabrina Reyes-Peters here. And this is episode 19 of the podcast, but episode 5 of Sacred Seminary Symposium, a joint podcast project with Sancta Colloquia. And if you've been following along, you know that we have been reading, and uh, by we, I mean the Reverend Lauren R. E. Larkin and I have been reading Mujerista Theology, and we are discussing chapter four in this episode, which is really all about how uh, theology is practice. It's not just thinking, and particularly for Mujerista Theology, that is how uh, theology uh, works out in the life of a Latina. So there's a lot more I could say about this episode, uh, but it's chock full of good stuff. And as we encourage you to do at the end of our conversation, if you would like to chime in with your thoughts, feel free to contact uh, either one of us or both of us um, on our socials. Um, I've listed my socials um, at the footnotes of the show notes. Um, you could also send uh, me an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to a Sacred Seminary Symposium. Uh, this is episode five, I think. Um, I'm Sabrina yes. Peters, and I'm here with uh, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hey, I'm Lauren Ari Larkin, and I am the host of Santa Colloquia, uh, which is the name of my podcast that I never say the same twice. Um, all right. Yeah, we are on chapter four, but we are on episode five. And I know it seems confusing, but confusing, but there was an introduction. Yeah. yeah, there's an intro episode um, before chapter one. Um, yeah, um, so last time we talked about the last chapter in the first part of Mujerista Theology, uh, which was about uh, the pain of exile. And um, Isasi Diaz takes, takes mm. us through kind of her interpretation of Psalm 137. Um, and today we're going to be going into part two. So to me, part one, uh, part one is called locating the self. Uh, to me, it was kind of setting up the background, um, setting up, uh, kind of, uh, Isasi Diaz's, uh, autobiography. So we get to know her better and like her context and stuff. And so now we're really getting into what I think is going to be the meat of uh, Mujerista theology. Um, it's part two. Yeah. And it's called uh, Doing Mujerista Theology. And chapter four is the point of our discussion today. It's yes. called Mujerista Theology, a challenge to traditional theology. Yes. And one thing that I have um, taken 
for granted is the way that she started her book, which was so relational in terms of presenting herself as um, not necessarily the principal subject of investigation, but the source from which she investigates. Um, I am, I've read um, Dorothy Zuela. She, in her book, um, Creative Disobedience, in the introduction, I believe, comments significantly on this masculinist approach to theological writing that is always like, just jump into the doctrine, right? And you kind of leave yourself out of it, which is this weird approach to theology. And I feel that Zuela is in league here with um, uh, Isazi Diaz in terms of that creatively disobedient approach to theology. For instance, when you read Karl Barth or you read Schleiermacher, which I am doing right now, I'm they sorry. See the joy, see the joy in my eyes. <laughs> they went lifeless. I'm sorry. Like, but he jumps off with, of course, it's clearly obvious that. I mean, literally within paragraphs, and you're like, wait, what? Like, where did you get this? Or where are you coming from? Or, but it, the perspective is assumed. Where I feel that women, people of color, the uh, Latino Latina community, um, you know, Black Indigenous people of color, LGBTQ, we all come to the table with here's a here I am it's like a, it's like a this interesting thing where we present ourselves and I wonder if it's this approach to this um expression of humanity see we are we're human and I was listening to a podcast today that was talking about um or maybe it was yesterday but it was that presentation of self as see I am human and thus valuable and thus able to be at this conversation but I find it to be pretty common for this like examination into the self or this presentation of the author in so many theologies written by people who are not cishet white men yeah um and to your point um uh, Isasi Diaz even writes in here uh, at the end of a really hard-hitting quote. Uh, she says, all theology must start with self-disclosure. Um, so, mm -hmm. and it's something that uh, people who are not at the top of the pyramid can see and do a little better. <laughs> Yeah, and if you think about some of the, I'm um, getting ready to prepare a sermon for Ash Wednesday, and I just sometimes mull over in my head the imageries and the stories coming out of the Old Testament where people not in power are forcibly exposed, and how authentically powerful and bodied it is to expose oneself, and that's a feeling of power that we can do that. Um, but yeah, there's, um, it's an interesting dynamic and one that, um, I, that I just noticed when you highlighted that for me and for the audience talking about how that first half of this book, the part one has been about her self-exposure. I was like, oh, oh, wow. That's significant. I yeah. took it for granted. Um, and so I was really glad that you brought that out because now she's going into, in chapter four, she is all about praxis, even though she's been about praxis. Let's be honest, Isazi Diaz is not afraid to talk about her praxis. No, she's not. Time. But this is where, like, she jumps in in chapter four with this, what is Mihorista theology? Um, and doing the subtitle, which is brilliant. We could probably end the episode just by saying, it's a challenge <laughs> to, to traditional theology, <laughs> which is practical in its um, uh, metal and makeup and material. So um, anyway, yeah, I ramble. 
Or sort of. Well, we can get right into it then, um, since it, it, we're so excited to talk about this chapter. Um, uh, what I think uh, the first section you wanted to highlight comes before my first section. It's true. It's true. And we move pretty, we, we, we seem to both skip through um, a few things. Um, there's like at least 10 pages that where she details out terms and terminologies that are essential to Muharisa theology um, and the embodiment of, for instance, uh, I don't know, you know, do you even want me to try to pronounce you some can of these words? Try. Um, <laughs> the, the Mestiza and Mulata, um, the Mestizaye and Mulatis, Mulates, um, terms that she finds on page 64 mm -hmm. if you want to turn to it. Um, these terms, uh, mestizaje, because I don't think the J is pronounced in Spanish, uh, The right? J is pronounced right? like an H. Yeah. H, yeah. Mestizaje refers to the mixture of white people and native people living in what is now Latin America and the Caribbean. And the mulates refers to the mixture of black people and white people. And so she, she spends time detailing out important terminology so that when you're coming into it, you have already been um, established. Um, I'm just trying to present a little bit of a background before we jump into the section that I found really um, really sort of um, influential to me. And this was right after those two words that I was butchering. Um, and it's this section where she speaks about lo cotidiano. Um, and specifically, this is a longer section, so I won't spoil all of the information she provides there, but on page 70, so we're almost like 10 pages mm -hmm. in at this point, um, the quote reads at, like, as follows. In no way is the specificity of lo cotidiano to be taken as anything goes moral attitude. The attitude is possible only in those who have power, in those whose social political reality is entrenched and therefore do not feel threatened by the rest of humanity. The attitude is possible only in those who feel their world is completely stable, that nothing needs to change, that nothing will change. That is why lo cotidiano of Latinas is totally unimaginable for the dominant group. That is why they are totally disengaged from lo cotidiano of two thirds of the world. That is why they are incapable of conceiving new ideas of creating new ways of organizing society, even ways that help them to perpetuate the status quo. Even ways that help, that would help them to perpetuate the status quo. Um, it's, Lo cotidiano is the Latina's lived experience. And I'm going to flip back just to get a better definition, just so we know what we're dealing with here. When in Mujerista theology, we talk about liberative daily experience, that about Hispanic women's experience of struggling every day, we are referring to lo cotidiano. Lo cotidiano has to do with particular forms of speech, the experience of class and gender distinctions, the impact of work and poverty on routines and expectations, relations within families and among friends and neighbors in a community, the experience of authority and central expressions of faith, such as prayer, religious celebrations and conceptions 
of key religious figures. It really seems to me that this term is being used to encapsulate that day in, day out experience, existentially speaking, um, that incorporates some of the other ideas that she's addressed before, specifically that daily struggle. Um, and the reason, and the reason why this this paragraph that talks about it's not about anything goes attitude that struck me is that I have experienced that, well, anything goes, I'm not gonna worry about anything. And it reminded me of that tendency in yeah. um, my white experience um, of, you know, don't worry, you know, let go, let God. And how that fails to embrace that idea of daily struggle and how many people can actually say let go and let god the sentiment is really nice but we begin to when we say it to certain and we say it outside of our existence or when i say it outside of my existence of an affluent white cisette female um i am not i'm i'm speaking from my own experience that i can actually let go and let god because the bills are probably going to be paid the food's probably going to be on the table and even though things might not be great right now i'll probably be okay i have a house i have you know and so i like that she teased that out that this isn't anything goes because that's a particular mindset for a particular group and so we can't apply that that to this concept uh, yeah, and I like that you um, gave us a little more context for uh, that phrase, Loco de Diano, because um, <laughs> I had uh, shared your Instagram post last night where you uh, took a picture of one of these paragraphs um, and shared it um, on your podcast account. And then one of my friends messaged me and, and he was like, is this the Spanish for quotidian? And I was like, wait, wait, what? Wait a second. And I was like, <laughs> no, the, the everyday life. And then I went and looked at the, at the definition for a quotidian. And I was like, oh, I, I see why, I see why he brought that up because I never really had the need to use that word a quotidian uh, before. So yeah. I kind of forgot right. what it meant. But um, I like how she is using uh, she's using this this phrase kind of like that, but she's also expanding expanding it to the the Latin American context. Yeah, yeah, and it seems to be like an all encompassing word, and I it's almost difficult to find you know that neat and tidy. Um, I think that's maybe just more of a maybe English like UK slash American desire to have these nice little clean definitions of words. But even when she goes on to keep explaining this, she says um, uh, she says that includes the way we Latinas consider actions, discourse, norms, established social roles, and our own selves. Points to shared experiences. Um, it's you know, referring to the stuff, quote unquote, um, and, and the process of Hispanic women's lives. Like it's this term that almost, I don't even know what we would have in our current context that would be something similar. Yeah, um, yeah, quotidian is like the most similar, but even that seems to only skim the surface. Like, yeah, it technically means like everyday stuff, but like what everyday stuff are you talking about? 
And are everyday people using quotidian a lot? Yeah, like, no, <laughs> not, not me. I, <laughs> I'm an English major and I was still like, I hope she defines that word for me. <laughs> and I know Latin, you know, like, oh, that's so embarrassing. Well, not really. I mean, I'm only human and my brain's like, we don't know where it is right now. But like, I feel like a low quotidiano is maybe a more accessible word yeah. like in terms of the way that she's presenting it and she did preface in the beginning in the first part that she does a lot of work with like grassroots uh latina experience um and so these terms are terms that are used we tend to have big fancy terms that designate our intellectual eliteness yeah yeah but anyway I like how she just pretty much was like, if you try to, if you try to add this into sort of this mentality of anything goes, la di da, you can't because they're, they're, what did I write? I wrote, anything goes attitude is the attitude of privilege because when you are in struggle, everything matters. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was, I was sort of realizing that like, you know, like if you think about the fishermen that Jesus called, that they dropped their nets and followed, like that's massive. I can imagine dropping my net and following because if I'm fishing, it's for hobby. Yeah. Yeah. It's for hobby, but for them, it was their livelihood. <laughs> so yeah. Right? You know, like they're like, oh, we're following. So I feel like that sort of, you know, personal encounter that like, that was a massive move that they did. And I feel like that's where this term um, Lakota Diano sort of like exists is in that encounter, uh, that struggle. And, you know, that's important. That's important concept for her as it seems so far in this text. Yeah. So how, yeah, so, um, sorry, did I miss, was that like, are you, were you leading up to the section that you wanted to talk about or was that the section that you wanted to talk about? That is the section. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That I liked, I liked her accusations in that specifically because um, they call out what I think should be called out and an attitude that I think that um, a lot of us in the West probably take for granted, which is that anything goes, don't worry about it. You don't stress. Um, it reminds me of a story from seminary that I was always very adamant about my grades. And so many of the dudes would say, oh, you're too intense. You're too worried. You should just, you know, C equals MDiv. And I was like, okay, for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, if I'm applying for doctoral programs in fields that are predominantly male dominated, I have to be exceptional. Like, yep. I don't get the C's. I don't, that's not okay. I will write the B paper because I need to. And so don't tell me to relax because you're looking at it from your perspective. And I feel like she's doing the same thing. Like if you're coming at this term and understanding this term with this concept of anything goes, you're coming at it with the completely wrong attitude. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, it reminds me um, of our conversation a couple episodes back when we were talking about like spiritual bypass, uh, was it spiritual bypassing? something like that or where uh, uh, some were finding it uh, so easy to tell people, oh, don't worry about the election results, like, because God's yes. got it under control. Yeah, yeah. Or I saw someone, uh, someone I know really well, too, but 
said, you know, oh, now that the election is over, can we all go back to normal? Ah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> ooh, I was like, ooh, ooh, and you're just how I go too. Like, that's not the thing to say to right now, you know? Like, it's just, um, but yeah, that that attitude of like, you're clearly looking at this from one perspective and you can not worry about it can not, not cannot, but you can not worry about it because you don't have to worry about it because that struggle is not yours. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're still in the struggle. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um did you want to say anything else about Lo Cotidiano or? Well, the, my, my next, um, right before your section was something that you wanted to quote from, um, she, continues and this was the other part that I um uh oh wait no I think yes um using lo cotidiano of Hispanic women as the source of Yuharissa theology is an act of subversion this is where I think I was going um, reminded of that Dorothy Zuela book, Creative Disobedience. Mm. Our theology challenges the absolutizing of mainline theology as normative, as exhaustively explaining the gospels or Christian beliefs. Using Loco Tidiano as the source of our theology means that Latinas are not the object of Nihorista theology. Hispanic women are the subjects, the agents of Nihorista theology. And I like that she does that because later in the chapter, she's going to bring up this um, application of intellectuality to people groups that we tend to strip self-expression and intellect intellectuality from. And here she's setting up, clearly setting up, um, they're not the objects of it. They're the subjects or the agents um, of this theology. They're doing it. And they've been doing it long before anyone else has been writing it down. And that's that historical aspect. And what she does with tradition in this chapter too reminds me of this moment as well. This like these, um, I'm thinking of like uh, Ket Armas and Abuelita Faith, right? Mm -hmm. That like the faithfulness that the grandmothers have passed on and they're not certified theologians, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's Mihurista theology. It is in praxis. It is in the doing. And it is subversive because it doesn't sit around and study exceptionally, exceptionally dead people, men. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of a really good segue, if you don't mind, to the no. section that I highlighted that is also on the same page um, that you just quoted from. Um, she, uh, Isasidias writes... Uh, for Latinas, our religious practices and beliefs contribute significantly to the struggle for liberation, the struggle for survival. And part of this understanding is the fact that for us, theology is a praxis. By praxis, I mean reflective, a liberative action. To understand theology as practice means that we accept the fact that we cannot separate thinking from acting. Mujerista theology is not reflection upon action, but a liberative action in and of itself. Um, and so, so there are a couple of reasons uh, I highlighted this section. Um, and also to be honest, I had a really hard time picking sections to highlight. Cause I was like, <laughs> I wanna highlight this section and this section yeah. and this section. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one, 
I guess they both tie they both tie into each other. So even though I tend to be a really idealistic person, um, I'm also I can also be very practical. So um, I have adopted the attitude more recently, and when I mean more recently, like in the past several years or so, if theology, if my theology isn't applicable to real life, then why I, why am I even playing around with it? Why am I studying it? Why am I devoting like my time and energy to it? Yes. And I remember getting into this like friendly Twitter debate with someone maybe last year or the year before who was saying something along the lines like uh, the, the church uh, needs people to, you know, really uh, study theology and like teach it just for the sake of doing and studying theology. And I was like, well, what? why <laughs> because oh, what, what good is this head knowledge if you're not gonna put it to practice and he was like oh well if you really love a subject you know like math or or something uh, let's be really general but um if you really love like this one area of study you're gonna study it because you love to study it and i conceded to that point i said yes that's true but like our theology spills over into everyday life. So yes, like you can study it for fun, but why kind of, what kind of like privileged stance is that? Like that you can say, oh, I'm studying theology for fun because I love to study theology simply for the, the joy of it. Like, no, like it, I, for me, I can do theology for fun, but it's also part of the struggle because the struggle for me has been speaking up for my own autonomy and my own agency as a woman in the church, uh, in the church that has not recognized uh, a woman's autonomy and agency. Um, and even more so for a Latina, um, even more so for LGBTQ, even more so for uh, BIPOC, and we keep going across and down the pyramid. Um, so this is why I really like liberation theology, I think, is mm -hmm. because not only are we thinking, but we are acting. Um, we're saying our theology needs to, it needs to aid the struggle. Um, it needs to contribute to the flourishing of humankind um, because, you know, um, I'm Fannie Lou Hammer. I hope I'm pronouncing her name, but she said, if, if you know, nobody's free unless everybody's free, right? Yes. So, yep. yeah. Those are the two reasons I wanted to highlight that section. Yeah, and I think that that idea of, um, it almost really does still co coincide with that idea of um, if you're, you have the privilege to just study something because you love it, 
but you see it as this like thing that you're sort of studying for fun. <coughs> that is a very privileged position. It's that Aristotelian, you know, um, contemplation of contemplation mm. can only be said by one group of people. Mm. Yep. If that's the highest form of existence, then me, well, granted, I wasn't in that I wasn't in that equation to begin with. But think about someone who's struggling to, you know, just get food on the table. Like your highest form of existence, you're always going to be far under that. Um, and I do think there's been a perspective that whole idea of work as this pursuit of what makes you happy. <laughs> like I am fortunate to do what I do that I, and I do feel called to, and I do, it does make me happy. But at the same time, that is like a very small percentage of people that can be like, I'm going to go do X and I'm going to go do this. And it's an interesting um, idea when many people are in our more capitalist society, you're just trying to find many different avenues through which they can put food on the table. Yeah. Um, and this brings me to a relevant side point. Um, how in the world did all of these white privileged men write all of these theology books and like get all this work done? It's because they had help um, in the background. They had women doing work, their menial tasks for them. <laughs> this is something, I don't know if I brought this up with you last time, or I know I brought it up recently, but it is worth mentioning again, Marx actually has a significant footnote. I don't know if you've gotten to that point in capital yet, I haven't. but a significant footnote dragging Aristotle because Aristotle talks about like labor and work and this and like doesn't ever take into account that his society was built on the black of, backs of slaves. Yeah. Like he's like, <clears throat> like <Yeah>. what? <laughs> and what we... It's, it's, it's so, it's so true. Like, tell me how busy you are while you like literally every minute of my day is scheduled right now. Like I can, and I have bragged about this because I'm like, this is bragging rights. 45 minutes. I can make three different lunches, get dinner going, clean up the dishes and hang two loads of laundry, like 45 minutes. But I'm also writing a dissertation and running a church. And, you know, like it's, it's, it's like, don't, don't, don't come to me and complain about how busy you are when I am literally doing all the things. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. Like, it's so important to keep in mind that when Karl Barth is sitting around writing the church dogmatics, he's got Nellie and Charlotte. Yes, so, he's got two. <laughs> Right, like, yeah. come on, we 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 and we hold each we hold ourselves to this masculine standard of production, and I'm just not there anymore. I don't care for it. Mm -hmm. Like, anyway, rant over. Yeah, amen <laughs> to that rant, though. <laughs> <sighs> All right, awesome. So moving on uh, to page seventy-eight. In case anyone is following in the book. Um, because subjectivity embraces the question, quote, who benefits from this? Muhadista theology challenges the so-called objectivity of traditional theology that refuses to recognize that it often tends to benefit the status quo 
at the expense of those who are marginal in church and society. The status quo is not an, a natural arrangement, but rather a social construct originating with and maintained mainly by white Euro-American males. Traditional theology offers intellectual backing for religious understandings and practices at the core of our churches. And it is easy to see who are those in charge of our churches. Finally, uh, Mujerista theology's insistence on recognizing and disclosing subjectivity challenges the official status of traditional theology that results in avoidance of engagement. Traditional theology has closed itself with the immutability that it claims is God's, or does perhaps not that traditional theology make God immutable because it makes God into its own image and likeness? If I had a microphone, I'd drop it <laughs> for her. <laughs> Yeah. And okay, so as I was reading through this I, chapter, I have that whole wow, thing highlighted yes. very aggressively. Yes. So I was reading through this and I was like, can she see Twitter right now? Because <laughs> so many of these things, these mic drops that she's, you know, doing is, is like so applicable to a lot of quote unquote discourse that's happening uh, right now. Um, and I'm thinking uh, specifically of like the Episcopal Church, uh, the Episcopal Church proper uh, in the United States. So like not the, not the Anglican Church of America, which is like its whole. It's a whole Anglican Church of North America. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is a, mm. <laughs> we'll go there right now. <laughs> okay. Um, like, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking like in the TE in the Episcopal Church, um, there are so many claims to like progressiveness and trying to welcome everybody. Uh but when it comes down to it, um they this is like the most recent example I can think of because uh, it's still happening. So like the Washington Cathedral invited Max Cicado to speak at something. I don't remember what it is. I just know that uh, this is like a slap in the face to the LGBTQ community because of what Max Cicado has said um, about them in the past. So it appears to me that the Episcopal Church is trying to hang on to the status quo at the same time trying to make it seem like everybody is welcome, but everybody who challenges challenges these hierarchies and um, these old ways of thinking, uh, they, they they never get very far. Like they're always discouraged in some form or another. Um, and they just, they just give up. And um, yeah, I, I, I truly think that the fiscal church is still trying to benefit from the status quo. Um, and when I read this, 
section, uh, my mind kept going back there because I was like, yeah, like, are we progressive or are we not progressive? Um, I don't, I don't think we are progressive. Um, I think that uh, they're still trying to hang on to the traditional theology and they're still trying to um, hold their image of God to a certain standard of liturgy, to a certain standard of doctrine. Although I've heard that you could argue of whether or not the Episcopal Church actually follows all their canon laws. Um, I don't know enough about that to speak on that. I've read them. <laughs> I've read them. <laughs> My old bishop, Bishop Owensby, he laughed because I would say, oh, Bishop Owensby, I read the canons. <laughs> he was like, I am not surprised that you're reading the canons. <laughs> I just like reading them. They're just so interesting and they are so nuancy. But yeah, no, I would say that there's a few things that go, oh, oh. 39 articles too. Apparently they're optional. Oh yeah. They're optional. Um, what else I was going to say, but Oh, like this is intersectional too. So like, not only is this like uh, the status quo in a theological sense, but, um, a lot of Episcopal churches are situated in like a white, uh, middle or upper, upper class context. And that is most of the time, who the, the congregation or, or parish is like mm -hmm. the, the vast vast majority of people um so uh, not only are they trying to hold like this theological hierarchy but also like this social hierarchy and like mm -hmm. this class hierarchy and this race hierarchy. <laughs> i could keep going down mm -hmm. the line like it's you're not you're not lying whatsoever. I mean, I'm in the throes of that tradition. And so I have seen, you know, uh, firsthand, I think that there is potential for I think it has some flexibility in its canons and um, or it could it could have some flexibility that it could be really remarkable. Um, but I do think that in general, um, it's it's one of the denominations that has the plushiest uh, endowment fund, like in terms of retirement. I mean, Episcopal priests are we're taken care of for sure. Um, and uh, it's I don't think I don't think that your call there is wrong. I, I I think that in general that's exactly where it lands itself. You you know educated, um, intellectual, um, wealthy, predominantly white, um, and um, that that sums it up. But not necessarily um, radicalized or but it's just aware enough of like the right words and right terminology to sort of move forward. Yeah. Um, and then pushing into that real sort of self-reckoning that self um, processing can be a little bit more, you know, touchy, but um, uh, it's in general, I mean, I've been to a lot of Episcopal churches and that's, that seems to be par for the, I'd have never, I've never been to one where the congregation is predominantly black. Um, I've never been to one where it's, I've seen church plants 
that get their funding from Episcopal churches that do minister to sort of the economically um, struggling groups of people. Um, but in general, it's an interesting denomination when you look at it from that perspective. Yeah. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Um, it's really hit hard because I've been thinking about it a lot. Because uh, yeah. I think the Episcopal Church does have a lot of potential, but like until they let go of wanting to uh, keep the appearance of traditional theology or like the status quo, like they're not, they're not going to get anywhere. And that makes me you sad. You have to be willing. Yeah, you have to be willing to offend people. Yeah, and that's not. I feel like that is avoided. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, and there's to some extent, there's some nobility in the idea that, um, we want everyone to be welcome. And I think we really do. I think we believe those signs that we put up everywhere. The Episcopal church welcomes you. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, we, the, it, it will, you can't preach a message that will make everyone happy all of the time. Mm, right. Yeah. But I think that oftentimes, and then what happens is when you do, you tend to preach nothing. Mm -hmm. because there's, you can't put substance in it. Otherwise someone's going to be offended. So it becomes a little bit kind of like oil in the hand. You can't grasp onto it. And then eventually people get tired of that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a difficult place to be if you're going to try to be that via media, which can be exceptionally problematic because you're defining yourself in the negative rather than in the positive. So in negative attributes, we're not this, we're not that, but what are you? Yeah. And it's like crickets yeah. because I don't necessarily know. And then when that happens, because nature pours a vacuum, something is going to get sucked into that empty space and then it'll take on a flavor of something else. So that's why you might have more Baptist feeling Episcopal congregations or more Catholic feelings or like congregations that have like a variety of different things because they're pulling in to make substance. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. I think if I could go back and do it all again, I'd probably be Presbyterian. PCUSA. I know. PCA. No, but I <laughs> I don't think I would last long. Um, though like at a certain time, I think I probably would have been. Um, but yeah, no, PCUSA. Um, it's always like I flirt with that tradition like often because I like its I like its personality. Like it just doesn't mind being like completely like, oh yeah, we get a lot of things from Calvin and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your problem? There's... <laughs> right? But we know what we believe. What do you believe? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. What about you? What would you? Uh, I feel like I could roll with the PCUSA. I feel like I could roll with the Lutherans. Um, the ELCA? Yes. Um, yeah, careful when you say Lutherans. Yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I said I just said ELCA, but it doesn't roll off my tongue that well. ELCA. Yeah. ELCA, yeah. e yeah. to be very specific. I could roll with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've heard that the ELCA is actually one of the first traditions that's legitimately progressive, like in its like core um components 
um, I've heard the Episcopal Church criticize that like people who are like women who are formerly Catholic who want to get ordained slip over into the Episcopal Church because it's the one that's closest to, but it still has its problems. Um, but the ELCA is actually one that's like like almost known for its progression from the beginning. So it's almost a little bit more, um, it's more supportive of that progressive, more radicalized um, ideas. Yeah, I've heard that too. I've also heard that the ELC has, uh, and it's the same in the Episcopal church, like they have a problem with white supremacy still. So yes. everything, it seems like, everything always leads back to uh, white supremacy because it's so uh, insidious. Um, mm -hmm. That's really true. That's really true. It doesn't help that Luther has his own issues with anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. which are prominent um, and uh, can be found threaded through um, his theology. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah. But uh, speaking of traditional theology, we're not done with it in this chapter, right? <laughs> right, right. There was one last quotation that I felt really summed up and it's right before, it's a few pages before the end, so we don't spoil the whole chapter for you. Um, but she concludes the section, um, or actually uh, Sabrina quoted from a section that is concluded and then theology as a communal task. And I'm quoting from the last little short paragraph from that section following what Sabrina just spoke. Um, and that's on page 79. And it reads, in a way, traditional theology, even the best of traditional theology, by insisting on following the patterns established long ago, in my opinion, closes itself to the ongoing revelation of the divine in our midst. Those who do traditional theology call their way of proceeding faithfulness to the past. I call it blindness to the present and ignoring God in our midst today. Boom. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's, Another mic that's drop. the quote. Yeah. Like if that was, if, the, if she was tweeting, she'd be like, that's the tweet, yeah. you know, like <laughs> send tweet. Um, it just so brilliantly, because I do feel that oftentimes a lot of my frustration in um, theological dialogue with people who tend to be more traditionalist is that I feel like it's a reciting of like who said what from the past and adhering to like what Augustine said or adhering to what Luther said or adhering to, and even the guy that I'm studying, Friedrich Gogarten, AKA Fritz, he does the same thing, like adhering to Luther's two kingdoms, adhering to Luther's law gospel, but without any ability to sort of flex and bend that so that it hits in the context and time period, which it could have had a, and Bonhoeffer's evidence of that time period and looking at Lutheran theology or Luther's theology in a different way that actually has an impact towards freedom. But it is, it's always this faithfulness to the past. But in so many ways, for so many of us, that faithfulness to the past becomes exceptionally problematic, yeah. right? Like it's not too far away from being like, make America great again. Mm -hmm. To which when I had a student, when I was first teaching at Ascension, um, when I was first teaching there and um, a student like brought that to my attention and I was like, please tell me what again we are going to, that's going to be great for me, <laughs> for black people, yeah. for gay people. Like, tell me yeah. what is the again? Yeah, exactly. 
you know, and so, um, but that's what I feel like when she says, um, proceeding with faithfulness to the past, I'm like, that is really true. And when you do that, you're, you can't look in two different directions at the same time, right? Like we aren't horses, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and so when you are focused on the past, it's also very hard to be focused on what's happening now with the, with, you know, a, a glance to the future, um, so I think she's right. I think she calls it as she sees it. And I think as she sees it is absolutely spot on. Yeah. Um, and uh, to touch back on uh, making or using or painting God in like the a- image of traditional theology, it made me think about how um, I can't quite make the, I can't quite articulate the connection as well as I want to yet, because I still feel like I am very much, very much a baby in this area. But uh, the dialectical theology, like uh, painting, painting God into something uh, that, that you want to, which is something that you can grasp and like defend um and uh, making that making that god instead of letting god be god and having that that uh i thou relationship um Mm -hmm. yeah so as i said i can't articulate as well as i want to but no that was that's absolutely brilliant the way that you were articulating that because it is really true. We tend to, this is one of the criticisms of the, the quest for the historical Jesus was that every time there was a quest, it was interesting that the Jesus that looked back at the questers looked just like them. Mm-hmm. And so when we try to, and this is what I think is really powerful by the program of demythology or the project of demythology or the process by which we do that, the idea of dialectical theology is always this like rattling of the foundation of whenever you feel like you've kind of gotten it, dialectical theology, lowercase d, lowercase t, because it's not a thing, Um, but it's it's that it just comes along and it, you know, like shakes the foundations, an earthquake, Mm -hmm. essentially, it's a theological earthquake. Mm Um, and so you can employ it in so many different ways. And so that's why you find so many theologians that tend to employ it. And in fact, when Kelly Brown Douglas in Stand Your Ground talks about African spirituality and African religion, there's a lot of dialectical tendencies in it. And it's so fascinating because it feels like it's something that has been sort of like coursing, like our ability to want to, or to, our, 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 our desire not to be rattled and to have things solidified seems to be as age old as like love, right? And so love is always that categorical experience that overhauls our existences. We're heading this way and then all of a sudden something happens and that it's it's, it's a really kind of remarkable experience. But I, I tend to see dialectical theology and the arc and movement of love to be almost nearly identical in that ground rattling um, uh, and it can do it at any era, right? So love is timeless, this dialectical, theological engagement of event of that kind of shaking is um, is uh, timeless as well. But yeah, like that idea of whenever we've gotten God figured out, that's probably when we're furthest from because God self-discloses. Yes. And theology as self-disclosure. <laughs> 
the theology is us talking about the, the self-disclosure, right? And so it's always got to have, it can't be solidified. It can't be, you know, like we got to get back. We can't, that that's not a thing. And I think um, uh, dialectical theology um, does a good job in sort of like being like, well, but can you go back? Can you like go back to the Acts 22 church or whatever it is, or, you know, Acts 2 or I forget. I don't even know. Are there 22 chapters in Acts? I'm not even sure. Uh, I'm blanking on that right now, which is pretty sad. <laughs> um, 28, yeah, I think. No, I think. Okay, good. So there is a 22. Uh, uh, but yeah, there's that. There's that um, going back and adhering to something, getting back to, you know, what is, it's comical when you think about like biblical manhood or biblical womanhood. It's like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know like it's gonna look like what you want it to be yeah exactly at the end of the day so because if you want to go back to biblical womanhood i really suggest the image of jail because why not that one <laughs> it's funny how she never comes up in the description <laughs> 10 peg i in wonder hands. why that oh, deborah is, no. oh, yeah <laughs> no, deborah was an exception because all the men were failing to lead oh well that's convenient yeah that's super convenient <laughs> Turns out times don't change. Is that biblical manhood failure to lead? I mean, think of the assumptions that are going on. But anyway, picking and choosing. <laughs> canons within canons. Um, anyway, yeah, this chapter was really great. And I'm glad that she um, spent time going through and kind of giving us some, um, I don't even want to call it a skeleton. I want to call it like pieces of like going back to the garden imagery mm -hmm. that she used in like chapter two or one or, um, but that she gave us some bulbs and seeds. Yes, exactly. These are the things from which this grows. Yes. Um, I almost wanted to use cooking imagery because um, I know that food is important. Uh, I come from a Mediterranean background. And so food is ingredients like that, that food, that cooking is supposed to be important. So it's also like ingredients to um, a recipe, but that seems a little bit more um, too simplistic. Uh, so going back to her imagery of things that grow and you don't necessarily know how they're going to grow, but these things are, these are the seeds that kind of plant this. And this is. Yeah. Good. Beautiful, not beautiful seeds because seeds are not much to look at, but seeds that will grow yeah. into beautiful things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this mm -hmm. has been, that was a really great read. I really appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. So that's, that seems like a good place to sort of wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, listening in, everyone. Um, again, if you have yeah. any questions or comments, uh, feel free to hit us up. Uh, we're both on Instagram. Really? We're both on Instagram and yeah. we both have email addresses. So yeah. Yes, yes. And the, the Sancta Colloquia is on Instagram and is on Twitter, though I'm not really checking that one. That one's kind of dead in the water. Um, but I also have Sancta Colloquia at gmail.com. So awesome. we'd love to have questions. And, um, you know, because we're about halfway through this book. So it's probably yeah. time for us to start processing. Just kidding. It's going to take us the rest of the year. <laughs>